what America has to teach the rest of the world is we've had this race problem from the founding, and there were some people by the Constitution who were right, who we said did not belong, and in fact were property of others. And then there is a population that has always belonged. And we have, uh, over our history, we've constantly expanded who belongs. And if you think of it this way, we are, like, there is a lot of frustration in American politics right now. There are a lot of fears around demographic change and will we become a majority people of color country. We are a multiracial democracy that has never been, we're an experiment that's never been tried in the entire history of the world. We're at the moment in the world and in American history where there's fear around the other. And that is what we have to take on, I think, and link people's fates in a different way together. My fate is linked to the Appalachian coal miner, more so than probably that person's fate is linked, say, to the president, because there's a difference between the wealth and the policies that are expanding the wealth at the very top versus what's happening to average ordinary people. And I think if we can talk to folks, this is what community organizing is actually about, talking to people in their communities and helping them craft a vision for their own lives and for a better life that they then want to go out and fight for and do it with other people, even people that don't look like them. That is our aspiration and our goal in our North Star. We've done it before in this country, and I think we can do it again. It doesn't feel like it in this moment, but I'm very, very confident we're going to do it again. Stay tuned to hear more on the evolution of America's promise from Dr. Dorian Warren, the incoming president of the Center for Community Change. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We're here today with Dorian Warren, the incoming president for the Center for Community Change and the current president of the Center for Community Change Action. Dorian is a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and a co-chair of the Economic Security Project. Dorian, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Sure. So the first question I'd like to ask you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Oh, well, um, what am I currently doing to advance the public interest? I am um, engaged in campaigns to protect immigrant families Mm -hmm. from detention and deportation. I'm engaged in campaigns to save what we call the social safety net, but programs for low-income people that they need to survive and create new opportunities. So what we call food stamps, otherwise known as SNAP, or Medicaid, which of course is healthcare coverage for poor people and those with disabilities. And I'm also engaged in campaigns around racial justice, so criminal justice reform um, in a number of dimensions from um, hyper and over incarceration to police violence to sentencing reform to bail reform. So those are my current campaigns. 
Um, you asked me what have I done mm-hmm. to advance the public interest, and I, in some ways my whole life has been about that. I was um, a college professor for many years. I was a union organizer of hotel workers. Um, I was involved in many worker organizing struggles in Chicago, in New Haven, Connecticut, and some other places. So in some ways, my entire adult life has been about advancing the public interest, about raising up the voices of those suffering from injustice and empowering them to change their lives and their communities. Now you're from the south side of Chicago. I think your personal story plays somewhat into your professional Indeed. trajectory. Indeed. Would you elaborate? So I grew up as a child of a single mother mm-hmm. uh, with an older brother. My um, mother was a public school teacher mm-hmm. her entire life, and so she served in the public interest in the public sector. Um, you know, her life. My father actually was in the military, even though I didn't grow up with him, but he was a public servant mm-hmm. his entire life. I think he fought in every war from Korea through, I want to say, the first Gulf War. Um, so I come from a long line of, um, at least immediately, from public servants. My grandparents were janitors in Chicago, um, mostly in public schools and the airport, O'Hare Airport. So they were also public servants. So this is, in some ways, this is in my blood. So a lot of what you described as what you have been doing and are currently doing seem to be a variety of somewhat progressive, but regardless of the label, mm-hmm. grassroots campaigns yes. to help disadvantaged Americans yes. or would-be Americans yes. succeed in the United States of America. Now, it seems as though uh, your personal background is not perhaps the most privileged of upbringings. Uh, and I'm wondering, uh, I guess, what uh, to, to what extent, um, how... Many might look at you and say, well, you know, how did he do it? How did you go from more humble beginnings than the executive director of Bobby Kennedy's legacy organization <laughs> to, to where you are now? Yeah. How is it that you overcame those obstacles, uh, perhaps with or perhaps without a social safety mm-hmm. net, to get to, to where you are today? And how are you going to, um, mm-hmm. I guess, pass that forward and make those sorts of opportunities available for other uh, Americans who find themselves in similar situations to where you once were? Well, a few, there's, there are a few factors, mm-hmm. I would say, that have led to where I am today. One is it's never alone. Mm-hmm. One never does this alone. There are communities of support. Um, and then there are people that fight to create more opportunities. And so if I think about, you know, my, everything from my childhood. So we went from being working class to middle class because my mother, along with thousands of other public school teachers in Chicago went out on strike. They took collective action together, it wasn't as an individual, Mm -hmm. to create a better workplace and to create more financial stability and security for themselves. Um, So my mother taught me the role of collective action, that it's not just about individual action, it has to be combined with a group of people because that's how you lift up your voices in a situation of unequal power relations. So that's one. Two, I've had lots of mentors and people that have opened doors for me along the way. So whether it was my swim team coach Mm -hmm. in high school who went to college and I was the first male in my family to go to college. My mother was the first person in my family to go to college, but she only had two choices in the 50s as a black girl in Chicago, nursing school or teacher's college. Mm -hmm. So when it came time for me to go to college, you know, we, we kind of struggle with, well, 
we've never done this before. What is the college process like this? So I had my swim coach who'd gone to University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign who taught me, took me to campus, Mm -hmm. showed me what it was like to be a college student, walked me through the process. So that's, you know, that was one example of mentorship. And then in college, my mentor in college um, actually was the person I suggested I don't think about law school Mm -hmm. and think about a PhD program and pursuing my education in that way that made me shift my thinking and my, you know, the entire paradigm about what I was going to do with my life to think, oh, okay, I can do um, something that's not, say, profit related Mm -hmm. and actually um, be an educator. Mm -hmm. Um, So along the way, those are just a few examples. So I've had mentors. And then last but not least, you know, I came of age as a beneficiary of the gains of the civil rights movement. So I went to public schools that were desegregated, and we were bused. And that was on the tail end of this experiment with busing in America as a way to desegregate segregated schools. How was that experience for you? It was amazing, because I was one of the last to grow up in an environment and to go to school in an environment where literally it was like the United Nations in my school, because we were bused in from all over the city. So we were about a quarter white um, and white in Chicago meant Irish and Polish and Bosnian and other ethnic groups. It was about a quarter Latino which meant Puerto Rican and Mexican. It was about a quarter African American um, and then a quarter Asian. And so I went, that was my norm mm-hmm. and that wasn't the, that's not the norm now of the average kid, especially on the south side of Chicago or the north side. You tend to go to segregated schools again. We, our schools, have, and the data shows this, our schools have resegregated in the last 20 years. So I came in on the tail end of this incredible experiment around desegregation and it shaped my worldview. It shaped what I thought was possible in terms of education. Is that it shaped my relationships. Like oh, absolutely. I think there's, there's, there's so many studies now that show that desegregated schools or to put it a different way, more diverse workplace and more diverse workplace teams are actually more effective, more creative, more innovative. So that, so, and I think, you know, I experienced that at such a young age, it was normal to me. Um, so that's one example. And then, you know, my university didn't accept black students until 1969 in a serious way. Maybe there were one or two or three along the way. Mm-hmm. And then in 1969, as a result, Yale of the, or university? this is University of Illinois, okay. as a result of the civil rights movement, really opened up and said, we want to recruit the best students in the state of Illinois without regard to race. And so for the first time, black students got to go, Latino students got to go, poor white students who had been excluded got to go. So I am the beneficiary of actual policy changes that have shaped the opportunities afforded to me along the way. Now, of course, I've had to do the work, right? I had to be a good student. It's mm-hmm. not like I was coasting through in any way. Mm-hmm. So, I've, so it's a combination of opportunities and the legacy of those who fought to open up doors, like a Bobby Kennedy or Dr. King, both of whom we commemorate this 50th, um, their 50th year of their assassinations this year. Both of those examples and many, many others, especially many women, have really kicked down doors for many of us, and that's what motivates me, therefore. So now, Dorian, you are about to take on the leadership, you're about to become the president of the Center for Community Change. You just mentioned Bobby Kennedy. What is it that the Center for Community Change does 
uh, its origins you mentioned earlier, food stamps. I believe that this uh, center played an integral role in the original passage of the food stamps program Indeed. in the United States. And talk about the evolution of this organization and where you'd like it to go under your leadership. So at the heart of this organization is a belief that everyone has dignity and should have an opportunity to thrive in the society of immense wealth. And so we fight for low-income people, for people living in poverty, for people of color who have been locked out of opportunity. And that is exactly where the legacies of Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy converge at the end of their lives. If you recall, Dr. King was organizing a poor people's campaign as a moral issue to say in the richest country in the history of the world, there's no reason why people should live in destitution and poverty. In concert but, with President Johnson's war on poverty? In concert with President Johnson's war on poverty, which Dr. King was arguing wasn't going far enough, and in, under which Bobby Kennedy was taking the mantle in a way and running on it as an election issue mm -hmm. for president in 68 and saying we have to do more around ending poverty in America and connecting the plight of those living in poverty in Appalachia, mm -hmm. particularly white rural folks, with urban poverty that was affecting black and Latino folks. And so that's been what we've done the last 50 years is really with a focus on ending poverty in America, but also on empowering the voices of those most affected by inequality and injustice. Now, so it's not that we're doing things for low-income people. We actually, our theory of the case is that we should empower those that are marginalized or disadvantaged to to lift their voices and to take action to improve their own lives. So many would say that the American dream is an upward socioeconomic uh, trajectory through society over generations. Um, and some would also say uh, that uh, the indigent are the most disenfranchised of all classes, lacking both money and power, uh, and therefore lack an ability to really have a great impact on the political scene. Now. Uh, presuming that this organization has been somewhat su successful, uh, as it has been in the very least passing food stamps, um, uh, promoting civic engagement, immigration reform, job training, uh, inequal addressing inequality, so many different issues that you've handled in the last uh, multiple decades, 50 years. Um, I imagine that uh, there were, there are individuals who once were low-income individuals decades mm -hmm. ago who have now become successful beneficiaries of these programs and find themselves in the middle or upper middle or perhaps mm -hmm. upper classes in America. Mm -hmm. What I'd like to ask you now is to what extent are those previous uh, targets of this organization, mm -hmm. how are they serving as allies to this movement? To what extent do you have people of the lower socioeconomic mm -hmm. classes of the 60s and 70s now helping advocate for those who came after them? So in a couple of ways, um, over the years, we've had many former uh, grassroots leaders serve on our board of directors, um, and we have a pretty big board of about 25 individuals, and I would say probably over the last 50 years, at least 100 have been from low-income communities or have been those that we've helped to empower and, and be, become more engaged in civic action. Um, but also the second way I would say, so there's sort of board service for those that have um, become much more successful in their lives. And in some rare cases, we've had some who have done very, very well who become individual donors to the organization to help fund this work. This is, you know, um, 
work that isn't adequately funded yeah. necessarily. We have some very, very kind philanthropic donors, but it takes work to actually recruit donors who have a lot to give to say, actually, your, your giving will go much further if you help to empower other people to have the same opportunities that you have had. So in those two ways, we've had former grassroots leaders be, be stay engaged with us over the years. And to give you one example of someone we're actually honoring this fall at our 50th anniversary gala is um, Congressman John Lewis, mm-hmm. who himself was a civil, young civil rights activist with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, even challenged Dr. King at some times, even though they were, they were also an alliance, uh, later became a state legislator and then, of course, a congressperson. But he also served on our board mm-hmm. many years ago. And he, in some ways, is the moral conscience today of the Congress around issues of injustice and unfairness. And so that's one of the reasons why we're honoring him, because he has stayed connected to us over the decades Mm -hmm. and still believes in the mission of the organization. He was also, by the way, with Bobby Kennedy the night that Dr. King was assassinated. They were at a campaign rally in Indianapolis, and Bobby Kennedy gave one of probably the most beautiful, touching speeches in American political history in terms of rhetoric and John Lewis was with him that night, so he also has a special connection to both Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy, and he's, he's, he's one of our champions. So as we look back to 1968 and now in 2018, would you say that America has been moving forward or more back, slipping backwards uh, with regards to addressing poverty? With, unlike, well, with anything else in this country, it seems like it's always two steps forward, one step back. And so we did make some progress around poverty. So, um, you know, to give you an example, probably the most successful poverty reduction program in the country is Social Security, which was founded in 1935. But then um, Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson, with support from our organization, um, some of the preludes to our organization, expanded on Social Security and invented Medicare and Medicaid, which is geared towards making sure the elderly didn't go broke, essentially because of health care costs, and Medicaid, which made sure that low-income people have access to health care. Um, and so we've helped to expand on those efforts in the years since 1965. Um, and then even in the, in the last year, we helped to lead a campaign to preserve the Affordable Care Act um, and especially the Medicaid expansion for low-income people. So um, that is one example of how there's been leaps forward, but how it also requires defense of things that have been gained and of progress made. Um, so I would say poverty reduction, ha- it, it, we made a lot of progress mm-hmm. after the 60s. In the last you know, two to three decades with wage stagnation, deindustrialization, the hollowing out of Rust Belt cities in terms of good jobs, we've actually moved backwards in terms of um, social and economic mobility. Um, the poverty rate has been stagnant, I would argue, the last decade or so. So we have a lot. We, we, we have to make progress again, and we need some big, bold ideas around how do we end poverty in America, and we need to think about how do we actually win around those ideas. So what are some of those ideas, especially ideas, well, not only ideas that you plan on implementing here at the Triple C, but ideas that Congress or state legislatures or even municipalities around the nation may be able to march on uh, independently? Well, there's now a really exciting debate mm-hmm. 
around should Americans be um, deserving of a guaranteed job mm-hmm. or a guaranteed income. And it's very lively. We have um, presidential candidates lining up for 2020 already, staking out positions on a guaranteed jobs program or guaranteed income program. So those are two really big ideas um, that I think we're going to see, I I would argue, are going to stay in the political consciousness for the next few years. Um, Then there's some other programs. So there's expansion of the Earned Income Tax Credit, which is also a program we've been involved in since the founding that um, has been expanded over the decades and is an incredible poverty reduction program for low-income people and especially for the working poor. Um, So we have guaranteed jobs, guaranteed income, expanding the Earned Income Tax Credit, expanding health care coverage, so in this case expanding Medicaid coverage to Mm -hmm. some states that don't Mm -hmm. allow it right now. All of these, um, there's like a debate about free college tuition. There's some really big ideas that people are bouncing around in this moment um, that I think are exciting. For those of us that care about um, poverty and around reducing poverty and, and recreating the ladder of mobility again in this country, I think these are some exciting ideas. It sounds like many of the issues that we've been discussing are issues that might find more support among candidates in the Democratic Party than the Republican Party. Right now, the United States has a majority. uh, The federal government is led by the Republican Party and the executive in both branches, the legislative branch, and increasingly, um, potentially, even in the Supreme Court. So many Americans, clearly, even indigent Americans, Mm -hmm. vote for the Republican Party. And um, throw around terms such as socialized socialism, mm-hmm. um, socialized health care. Uh, previous guests on public interest podcasts include individuals who grew up behind the Iron Curtain uh, in communist countries where everyone was guaranteed a job and it was illegal to be unemployed. Uh, and um, so I think there's many fears that yep. run rampant in the United States. I think the current president of the United States has played to those fears. Uh, how would you address this interplay, this tension mm-hmm. uh, that persists across the country? That's a really great question, and there, there are multiple ways to come at it. So first, um, there are lots of other countries that have offered um, economic security to their residents and citizens that we can look to. So if you think of some of the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Denmark, Finland, Sweden, um, even if you go down to the Netherlands, Um, There are lots of examples of what some might call social democracies that are the combination of capitalist economies with um, a floor, an income floor and social protections that allow people to not fall below and people to thrive, right? So no one is like, it's not like everybody is super rich in those countries, but that's, that's sort of an alternative to the, you know, the American version or the Chinese communist version. Now, even in those countries, though, because yes. some Scandinavian legislators have been on public interest podcasts, yes. there is a populist backlash against Indeed. these socially generous policies. There's an anti-immigrant, Indeed. anti-EU, Brexit-type theme in these generous countries. Indeed. So how do you allay the fears, not only of the Danish... Or the, or the Finnish populations, mm-hmm. but more importantly, since we're in the United States, even if, if, it, if there's still backlash in the countries yes. that are the models, yes. how do you allay the fears of Americans, many of whom may be the primary beneficiaries of these plans in the United States, yes. who are voting against it, and they say, we can't, there's no free lunch, 
How do you allay their fears? Yep. Um, well, there are a few ways here. One is um, this, you know, at the heart of what's happening, not just in the U.S., but around the world, is a notion of who belongs and who doesn't. And you can't sidestep race or ethnicity or religion. And so what one of the this is partly what America has to teach the rest of the world is we've had this race problem from the founding, and there were some people by the constitution who were right, who we said did not belong and in fact were property of others, and then there is a population that has always belonged. And we have uh, over our history we've constantly expanded who belongs. And if you think of it this way, we are like, – there is a lot of frustration in American politics right now. There are a lot of fears around demographic change and will we become a majority people of color country. We are a multiracial democracy that has never been – we're an experiment that's never been tried in the entire history of the world. The world for the most part well, has been isolated. That's what I but mean. But it has yes. been replicated many times since or but has it? I think that's an open question, right, in terms of – what what is if you think about a multiracial democracy where people have a certain set of rights and freedoms and who have come from all over the world and live together relatively peacefully we've only had one civil war thus far um, we are like it's a pretty bold experiment and we haven't been perfect but we've done pretty well given in the history of the world mm-hmm. it's been really hard to have people from other races, ethnicities, religions, actually live together peacefully. So I actually think we're in the long sweep of history. I actually think we're doing pretty well. doesn't mean that we're at the moment in the world and in American history where there's fear around the other. And that is what we have to take on, I think, and link people's fates in a different way together. My fate is linked to the Appalachian coal miner, more so than probably that person's fate is linked, say, to the president, because... There's a difference between the wealth and the policies that are expanding the wealth at the very top versus what's happening to average ordinary people. And I think if we can talk to folks, this is what community organizing is actually about, talking to people in their communities and helping them craft a vision for their own lives and for a better life that they then want to go out and fight for and do it with other people, even people that don't look like them. That is our aspiration and our goal in our North Star. We've done it before in this country, and I think we can do it again. It doesn't feel like it in this moment, but I'm very, very confident we're going to do it again. So as we approach the end of this podcast on the topic of messaging and narratives, right? Clearly you said that the Appalachian white coal miner has more in common with an urban Mm -hmm. African-American indigent individual than with the billionaire who sits in the White House, um, which that is what you just said. Yep. Um, but clearly not many individuals in both of those populations do not feel that. Right. So on as we push into this podcast, I'd like to ask you about, uh, about the sort of messaging that you would like to offer um, to the country if they were to be listening to this episode about what needs to happen to what – what, how are they going to help themselves and their family? Uh, what do they need to be aware of if an election is coming up, or even if there isn't one, to be civically engaged? What is, what is a means of action for the every man who may be listening to this show? Why is this something that is appealing to you? Uh, essentially, mm-hmm. what is the, uh, by asking your messaging, I'm asking you, what do you hope will be the impact of the work that you are set out to do here? 
I, well, at the end of the day, I hope the impact of our messaging, of our organizing, of our putting people in relationship to each other that have never been, of crafting new communities, of expanding the circle of who belongs and who doesn't, my hope is that we can actually make a leapfrog advance in this project of a multiracial democracy where everyone who was born here, um, that they're not born poor by accident of birth and are relegated to a lifetime of being poor, that everyone has the same opportunity in terms of the ladder of opportunity and mobility to thrive and to pursue their dreams and to live with security. I think everybody wants to feel secure and not in fear. And so I think, um, you know, there's a choice to be made between supporting those who traffic in fear as a vision of the future and those who traffic in hope and a vision of the common good and a better life. And that's what I hope, and I'm very confident that we will prevail on the message of hope and security and thriving and linking people's fates to each other who might not necessarily have any, think they have anything in common. And that has been Doreen Warren, the incoming president of the Center for Community Change, the president of the Center for Community Change Action, fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and co-chair of the Economic Security Project, who harkens back to Abraham Lincoln's vision on the field of Gettysburg uh, of a young democratic experiment that uh, whose future is not guaranteed in this in this world, but uh, this that this bold democratic experiment is worth investing in uh, and worth believing in. Uh, Dorian speaks uh, about a fundamental tension in this country uh, with two paths: one leads to fear, the other to hope. One is a path that is uh, marked by division, and one of cohesion. He remarks about how uh, in this grand democratic experiment the United States has expanded over the last two and a half centuries who belongs in America as a multiracial racial democracy. Uh, at the Center for Community Change, Dorian tries to foster new relationships grounded upon dignity and uh, w- uh, with a foundation premised upon uh, the universal opportunity to thrive as being something that belongs to every American. Uh, he acknowledges that this is an effort that requires collective action, and ultimately uh, he hopes that uh, we can take two steps forward without that one step back. So, Dorian, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jordan, and thanks for the Abraham Lincoln reference as a son of Illinois. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.